Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, if you notice this week as we draw to the very end here of the liturgical year, things get even more apocalyptic in the readings as, as the week goes on, but especially in the gospel we have today. What I want to point out is in both the readings that we have today from the gospel of Matthew and from this, uh, the reading from the book of Daniel, we have uh, two examples of prophecy. Like we're exposed to in both readings prophetic utterances that point ahead to things that are going to happen in the future, things that were fulfilled in the future but in the past. You with me though? You with me? Okay. Prophetic utterances. And I, I think we're, I don't think we know what to think about prophecy as modern Christians. Because on the one hand, we know that because of our baptism, we're called to a prophetic identity, right? We're conformed to Jesus, priest, prophet, and king. What is a prophet? Someone who speaks on behalf of God. Okay, fine. But this notion of prophecy in terms of foretelling things that are coming in the future, we tend to think, I don't know about this Nostradamus kind of stuff, right? We kind of poo-poo that. But, I mean, you read the scriptures. Just take the readings that we have for today. Like, it becomes abundantly clear that, that that second notion of prophecy in terms of foretelling things that are to come was an incredibly important part of how God verified his activity in the life of his people You have to reckon with prophets, not just ones who rail against the establishment, but prophets who say, this is going to happen, and then it happens. So like I said, we've got two instances of prophetic utterances in the scriptures today. Jesus in the gospel is just pointing to the temple, right? This temple that took over 40 years to construct, this wonder of the ancient world, glorious beyond imagining, right? It was Herod the Great who put it together far surpassing the temple of the first, uh, the first construction under Solomon. This temple was massive in its scope, huge, beautiful beyond imagining. And Jesus is just like, these are coming when this whole thing is going to be thrown down. It's going to be destroyed, completely destroyed. And of course he was right. He was right. In, 60, in 63 AD, the Romans came and they sacked Jerusalem, raised the temple to the ground, burned it completely, decimating it, never again to be destroyed, never again to be rebuilt, completely destroyed. The prophecy, though, that I want to really spend some time with here is from the first reading from Daniel. These texts, right, I don't think these are, these texts, they're not, I don't think as familiar to us as Christians, and and even hearing them proclaim, Bill, you did a great job with these texts, right? But even hearing it proclaimed, you kind of get lost in it, right? The imagery, this statue, it sounds like a tour through Home Depot. You hear about gold and iron and tile. You're like, what's going on here? Are you guys awake this morning? Okay, just making sure. So you've got, uh, you've got this reading from Daniel. But for us as modern Christians, we don't really realize how incredibly important the book of Daniel was to the ancient Jews. Because Daniel's oracles, they established like a timeline they established a, um, like an hourglass, so to speak, a, an hourglass of expectation for when the Messiah was going to show up. These readings were incredibly important. Like, I often wondered why, 
I often wonder why there was such, like at the time leading up to Jesus, his birth, his incarnation, there was such political and religious fervor and unrest at the time. There was such turmoil around the time of Christ's birth. Like, like why was there such messianic expectation in the air when Christ was born? Why was Herod the Great so panicked about the idea of a Messiah arising? What were the Magi doing, searching these texts and traveling from the east to come visit this newborn king? Why were they searching the ancient texts and all of those things? It's because of Daniel. It's because of these prophecies. It's because of what he said, that there was all this messianic expectation. Right? Daniel says that there would be a series of kingdoms so Daniel is he's in the midst of the Babylonian kingdom. He's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. And he's saying to him, there is going to be a succession of kingdoms, one after the other, that the Babylonians would be succeeded by another kingdom, the Persians, which happened. And the Persians would be succeeded by another kingdom, the Greeks, which happened. And the Greeks would be succeeded by another kingdom, the Romans, which happened. I don't have time to get into all of the symbolic um, connections of the, the material of the statue, right? The gold, the bronze, the iron, the tile. Like, I don't have time to get into that, but there is, there's deep connections to the culture, the weapons, all of it, that, why those symbols line up. He says that in the lifetime of this final kingdom, the Messiah would come. He says, in the lifetime of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed or delivered up to another people. Rather, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and put an end to them. It shall stand forever. That is the meaning of the stone, he says, that you saw hewn from the mountain without a hand being put to it, which broke in pieces the tile, iron, bronze, silver, and gold. Right? Who do we say Christ is? Christ, the stone rejected by the builders. It's become the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Jesus, he's like the, the single stone that David put in his slingshot and wheeled and brought down the mighty mountain of Goliath. You see these symbols here, right? It goes even further. Think about this, that where Christ himself was crucified, right? We call it Golgotha, the place of the skull. Golgotha, what was it? It was a quarry. It was a quarry just outside of the ancient city walls of Jerusalem, it was this rocky outcrop. So you think about how quarry construction happens, right? So you cut rock away for stonemasonry. And the stonemasons, masons, as they were cutting away this rock where the quarry was, they, they got to this aspect, this portion of the rock that was this ironized rock. It was rock that was no longer good for stonemasonry. It was rejected stone. Stone that was rejected by the builders. So what did the Romans do? Well, you have this perfect rocky outcrop just outside the city walls, right outside the entrances. That's where they set up public executions. That's where they set up the spot for crucifixions. That's where Jesus was crucified, upon the rock that was rejected by the builders. It becomes pretty astounding when you begin to see the, the interconnected plan in all of this. The Lord laid out over the long course of centuries a plan that was foretold and, and somehow foreseen by Daniel centuries before the birth of Christ. It's pretty exhilarating when you just realize just how we are caught up in this incredible story. 
that we don't just simply look back on the events of old and just think, boy, that was some pretty incredible time, and we just finally remember the happenings of God, the interactions of God with humanity. No, we are, we are in the story. We are in the story. It's still unfolding in our midst. Let's just ask again for the grace of being overwhelmed with awe and wonder at all of this today. Amen.